Section 21 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 11 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 1, by Ida L. Pfeiffer. June 20th. Shortly after five this morning we were in our saddles, and a few hours afterwards arrived at the beautiful river Mishmir, which is as broad as the Jordan, though it does not contain nearly so much water. Next to the Jordan, however, this river is the largest we find on our journey, besides being a most agreeable object in a region so destitute of streams. Its water is pure as crystal. In ten hours we reached the town, and at once repaired to the convent, as not one of these cities contains an inn. The little convent, with its tiny church, is situate at the end of a large courtyard, which is so thronged with horses and men, particularly with soldiers, that we had great difficulty in forcing our way through. When we had at length cleared a passage for ourselves to the entrance, we were received with the agreeable intelligence that there was no room for us. What was to be done? We thought ourselves lucky in obtaining a little room where we could pass the night in a house belonging to a Greek family. Beds were, however, out of the question. We had to lie on the hard stones. In the courtyard a kind of camp had been pitched, in which twelve state-houses of the emir of Lebanon, creatures of the true Arab breed, were bivouacking among a quantity of Arnots. The Arnot soldiers are universally feared, but more by friend than foe. They are very turbulent, and behave in an overbearing manner towards the people. The Count, my fellow-traveller, was even insulted in the street, not by a peasant, but by one of these military fellows. These ill-disciplined troops are assembled everywhere, in order that they may be ready to attack whenever a disturbance occurs between the Druzes and the Maronites. I consider, however, that the Arnots are much more to be feared than either the Druzes or the Maronites, through whose territories we afterwards journeyed without experiencing, in a single instance, either insult or injury. I hardly think we should have escaped so well had we encountered a troop of these wild horsemen. Among all the Turkish soldiers the Arnots are the best dressed, with their short and full white skirts of linen or lawn, and tight trousers of white linen, a scarf round the middle, and a white or red spencer. They closely resemble the Albanians. June 21st. This was a most fatiguing day, although we did not ride for more than ten hours. But this ten hours' journey was performed without even a quarter of an hour's rest, though the thermometer stood at thirty-three degrees Raymer. Our path lay through a sandy desert, about two miles in breadth, running parallel with the mountain range from Saida to Beirut. The monotony of the steppe is only broken at intervals by heaps of sand. The surface of the sand presents the appearance of a series of waves, the particles of which it is composed are very minute, and of a fine yellowish-brown color. A beautiful fertile valley adjoins this desert, and stretches towards Mount Lebanon, on whose brown rocky surface several villages can be descried. This mountain range has a most imposing appearance. White rocks and strata of white sand shine forth from its broad and generally barren expanse like fields of snow. The residence of the late Lady Hester Stanhope can be seen in the distance on the declivity of the mountain. During our long ride of ten hours we did not pass a single tank, 
spring, or even pool, and all the river-beds on our way were completely dried up by the heat. Not a tree could we see that could shelter us for a moment from the glaring heat of the sun. It was a day of torment for us and for our poor beasts. Two of our brave horses sunk from exhaustion and could go no further, though we relieved them from their burdens. We were obliged to leave the poor creatures to perish by the wayside. At three in the afternoon we at length arrived at Beirut, after having bravely encountered, during ten consecutive days, the toil and hardship inseparable from a journey through Syria. The distance from Jerusalem to Beirut is about two hundred miles, allowing for the circuitous route by way of Tabarith, which travellers are not, however, compelled to take. From Jerusalem to Nazareth is fifty-four miles, from Nazareth across Mount Tabor to Tabarith and back again thirty-one miles, from Nazareth to Mount Carmel, Haifas, and Acre, forty-six miles, and from Acre to Beirut, sixty-nine miles, making the total two hundred miles. Our poor horses suffered dreadfully during this journey, for they were continually obliged either to climb over rocks, stones, and mountains, or to wade through hot sand, in which they sank above the fetlocks at every step. It would have been a better plan had we only engaged our horses from Jerusalem to Nazareth, where we could have procured fresh ones to carry us on to Beirut. We had been told at Jerusalem that it was sometimes impossible to obtain horses at Nazareth, and so preferred engaging our beasts at once for the whole journey. On arriving at Nazareth we certainly discovered that we had been deceived, for horses are always to be had there in plenty, but as the contract was once made we were obliged to abide by it. During the ten days of our journey the temperature varied exceedingly. By day the heat fluctuated between eighteen degrees and thirty-nine degrees reamer. The nights, too, were very changeable, being sometimes sultry and sometimes bitterly cold. Beirut lies in a sandy plain, but the mulberry trees by which it is surrounded impart to the city an air of picturesque beauty. Still we wade everywhere, in the streets, gardens, and alleys, through deep sand. Viewed from a distance, Beirut has a striking effect, a circumstance I had remarked upon my first arrival there from Constantinople, but it loses considerably on a nearer approach. I did not enjoy walking through the town and its environs, but it was a great pleasure to me to sit on a high terrace in the evening and look down upon the landscape. The dark blue sky rose above the distant mountains, the fruitful valley, and the glittering expanse of ocean. The golden sun was still illuminating the peaks of the mountains with its farewell ways, until at length it sunk from view, shrouding everything in a soft twilight. Then I saw the innumerable stars shine forth, and the moon shed its magic light over the nocturnal landscape. And that mind can scarcely be called human which does not feel the stirring of better feelings within it at such a spectacle. Truly the temple of the Lord is everywhere, and throughout all nature there is a mysterious something that tells even the infidel of the omnipresence of the great spirit. How many beautiful evenings did I not enjoy at Beirut? They were, in fact, the only compensation for the grievous hardships I was obliged to endure during my stay in this town. In the inn I could again not find a single room, and was this time much more at a loss to find a place of shelter than I had been before, for our host's wife had gone out of the town with her children, and had let her private house. So I sat, in the fullest sense of the word, in the street. A clergyman, whose acquaintance I had made in Constantinople, 
and who happened just then to be at Beirut, took compassion upon me, and procured me a lodging in the house of a worthy Arab family just outside town. Now I certainly had a roof above my head, but I could not make myself understood, for not a soul spoke Italian, and my whole knowledge of Arabic was comprised in the four words, Taib, Moy, Sut, Mayfish, Beautiful, Water, Milk, and Nothing. With so limited a stock of expressions at my command, I naturally could not make much way, and the next day I was placed in a very disagreeable dilemma. I had hired a boy to show me the way to church, and explained to him by signs that he was to wait to conduct me home again. On emerging from the church, I could see nothing of my guide. After waiting for some time in vain, I was at length compelled to try and find my way alone. The house in which I lived stood in a garden of mulberry trees, but all the houses in the neighborhood were built in the same style, each having a tower attached, in which there is a habitable room, and all these dwellings stand in gardens planted with mulberry trees, some of them not separated from each other at all, and the rest merely by little sand-hills. Flowers and vegetables are nowhere to be seen, nor is the suburb divided into regular streets, so that I wandered in an endless labyrinth of trees and houses. I met none but Arabs, whose language I did not understand, and who could therefore give me no information. So I rushed to and fro, until at length, after a long and fatiguing pilgrimage, I was lucky enough to stumble on the house I wanted. Unwilling to expose myself to such a disagreeable adventure a second time, I thought it would be preferable to dwell within the town, and therefore hired the young guide before mentioned to conduct me to the house of the Austrian consul-general, Ervon A. Unfortunately this gentleman was not visible to such an insignificant personage as myself, and sent me word that I might come again in a few hours. This was a true Job's message for me, as far as consolation went. The heat was most oppressive. I had now entered the town for the second time, to be sent once more back to the glowing sands, with permission to come again in a few hours. Had I not been uncommonly hardy, I should have succumbed. But luckily I knew a method to help myself. I ordered my little guide to lead me to the house in which the wife of Batista, the innkeeper, lived. During my previous residence at Beirut, I had accidentally heard that a French lady lodged in the same house, and occupied herself with the education of the children. I went to call on this French lady, and was lucky enough to find her, so I had at any rate so far succeeded that I had found a being with whom I could converse, and of whom I might request advice and assistance. My new acquaintance was an extremely cordial maiden lady about forty years of age. Her name was Pauline Candice. My unfortunate position awakened her compassion so much that she placed her own room at my disposal for the time being. I certainly saw that my present quarters left much to be desired, for my kind entertainer's lodging consisted of a single room, divided into two parts by several tall chests. The foremost division contained a large table, at which four girls sat and stood at their lessons. The second division formed a kind of lumber-room, redolent of boxes, baskets, and pots, and furnished with a board, laid on an old tub, to answer the purposes of a table. My condition was, however, so forlorn, that I took joyful possession of the lumber-room assigned to me. I immediately departed with my boy-guide, and by noon I was already installed, with bag and baggage, in the dwelling of my kind hostess. But there was no more walking for me that day. 
What with the journey and my morning's peregrinations, I was so exhausted that I requested nothing but a resting place, which I found among the old chests and baskets on the floor. I was right glad to lie down, and court the rest that I needed so much. At seven o'clock in the evening the school closed. Miss K. then took her leave, and I remained sole occupant of her two rooms, which she only uses as schoolrooms, for she sleeps at her brother's house. My lodging at Miss K.'s was, however, the most uncomfortable of any I had yet occupied during my entire journey. From eight o'clock in the morning until seven at night, four or five girls, who did anything rather than study, were continually in the room. The whole day long there was such a noise of shouting, screaming, and jumping about, that I could not hear the sound of my own voice. Moreover, the higher regions of this hall of audience contained eight pigeons' nests, and the old birds, which were so tame that they not only took the food from our plates, but stole it out of our very mouths, fluttered continually about the room, so that we were obliged to look very attentively at every chair on which we intended to sit down. On the floor a cock was continually fighting with his three wives, and a motherly hen, with a brood of eleven hopeful ducks, cackled merrily between. I wonder that I did not contract a squint, for I was obliged continually to look upwards and downwards, lest I should cause mischief, and lest mischief should befall me. During the night the heat and the stench were almost insupportable, and immediately after midnight the cock always began to crow, as if he earned his living by the noise he made. I used to open the window every night to make a passage of escape for the heat and the foul air, while I lay down before the door, like Napoleon's Mamluk, to guard the treasures entrusted to my care. But on the second night two wandering cats had already discovered my whereabouts. Without the least compunction they stepped quietly over me into the chamber, and began to raise a murderous chase. I instantly jumped up and drove away the robbers, and from that time forward I was obliged to remain in the interior of my fortress, carefully to barricade all the windows, and bear my torments with what fortitude I might." Our diet was also of a very light description. A sister-in-law of the good Pauline was accustomed to send in our dinner, which consisted one day of a thimbleful of saffron-colored pilau, while the next would perhaps bring the shoulder of a small fish. Had I boarded with my hostess, I should have kept five fast days in the week, and have nothing to eat on the remaining two. I therefore at once left off dining with them, and used to cook a good German dish for myself every day. In the morning I asked for some milk, in order to make my coffee after the German fashion. Yet I think that some of our adulterators of milk must have penetrated even to Syria, for I found it as difficult to obtain pure goat's milk here as to get good milk from the cow in my own country. My bedstead was formed out of an old chest, and my sole employment and amusement was idling. I had not a book to read, no table to write on, and if I once really succeeded in getting something to read or made an attempt at writing, the whole tribe of youngsters would come clustering round, staring at my book or at my paper. It would have been useless to complain, but yet I could not always entirely conceal the annoyance I felt. My friends must pardon me for describing my care so minutely, but I do so to warn all those who would wish to undertake a journey like mine, without being either very rich, very high-born, or very hardy, that they had much better remain at home. As I happened to be neither rich nor high-born, the council would not receive me at all the first time I called upon him. 
although the captain of a steamer had been admitted to an audience just before I applied. A few days afterwards I once more waited upon the consul, told him of my troubles, and stated plainly how thankful I should feel, if any one would assist me so far as to procure me a respectable lodging, for which I would gladly pay, and where I could remain until an opportunity offered to go to Alexandria. The worthy consul was kind enough to reply to my request with a shake of the head, and with the comforting admission that he was very sorry for me, it was really extremely unfortunate. I think the good gentleman must have left all his feeling at home before settling in Syria, otherwise he would never have dismissed me with a few frivolous speeches, particularly as I assured him that I was perfectly well provided with money, and would bear any expense, but added that it was possible to be placed in positions where want of advice was more keenly felt than want of means. During the whole of my residence at Beirut, my countryman never troubled himself any more about me. End of section 21